Deborah was
Heavenly Father, what a, what a true gift it is to have all of these life, real life reminders of what we receive through faith in Christ, that we are shielded from the storm. The storms of death, the storms of sorrow and sickness that one day will fade, the storms of judgment that we so rightly deserve because of your ineffable, beyond words, love. As we dive into Proverbs 30 and we look at a text that is about wisdom and how we think of finances and money and possessions, God, oh, it's, 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 a, it's so we might flourish, but really what it's about is so we might stay tethered to you. And that's what we need more than anything else. In this room, whether we came in as, as Christians that have been Christians for decades upon decades, who have never known a day where we didn't know Christ, or whether we're in this room as new Christians or, 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 or not yet Christians, just even asking questions, trying to figure out how we ended up in this room this morning, God, what every single person needs most is that we would leave this place more amazed at the ineffable love that is found in Christ alone. Holy Spirit, come and show him off, lift him high, and draw all of us towards him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was in Dallas, Texas, about five or so years ago, and I was at a board meeting for Acts 29, which is the church planning organization that we're part of, and so we're doing meetings all day, and then at night, it would always pick the places that you're going to go and, um, and eat. And so, you know, we do our meetings, and then we go out, and we, we got to this, this barbecue place, and I'd never had barbecue like this before, and the person that was hosting found that out, and so we're in line, and you're in this, you're, you go into this, I mean, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, it was like, it was like, Acre. It felt like an acre of, of smokers, all set up, really super amazing, nice, fancy, you know, you know, just stainless steel everywhere, smoke rising up, and then you grab uh, what looks like a cafeteria tray, and you get into this, this line that kind of weaves around, and then you, you, you get to a place where then you're going to say, hey, I want some of this, or I want some of this, and, and so the guy that, that was hosting found out I'd never eaten barbecue like this, and so he just looked at me and said, hey, what you want to do is make sure to ask for, you want a sampling of everything. Don't, don't pick and choose. Just say, just give me some of everything because you want to make sure you get to try everything. And so I said, okay, you know, I've never been here before. You're, you're, the, you know, you're from Dallas. I'll do what you say. And so they all go through and they get their trays full. And then I grab my cafeteria tray and I hand it to the, the guy that's going to turn behind. They have this whole display of, of the kind of food they have. And, and I said, hey, I was told I'm supposed to get something of everything. And so he says, okay. And so he grabs my tray and he turns around and his back's to me and he's kind of grabbing things. And, and, and then at some point, he turns back around in my tray. It had to weigh like 14 pounds. Like, I mean, this thing was just a mountain because if you've ever been to a smokehouse like this, I mean, you, it had brisket and it had ribs and it had different types of ribs and it had like whole chickens and it had quarter chickens and it, it had all these different types of sausages and, and then it had like the obligatory vegetable. I don't even know what it was, but you get some of that and it had corn, it had all this stuff and they pile it on this tray and so then I'm carrying this thing. You know, I had a back brace on to make sure I didn't strain something and I go and I go to the register and everything was part of one tab. So I kind of felt bad about this, but I didn't because I wasn't paying for it. But it was, it, was like, it was like three figures worth of meat. It was an insane amount of money, an insane amount of food. And then they're like, well, do you want any sides with it? You know, usually people get sides with it. I said, well, I probably should. What do you recommend? Well, you should get some, some fries and some bread because we like bread with everything. So I said, okay, give me some fries and bread. And so now I got like a loaf of bread on top of my platter of animal and some french fries on the side. And I just asked for like a piece of parsley. So I felt like I had some salad, right? I go and I carry my tray. I sit down with this, the, the other board members and we're sitting there and the guy that told me, he just starts laughing and he says, get ready. And I said, get ready for, for get ready for what? <laughs> What's going to happen to me? He says, have you ever had the meat sweats before? <laughs> I'd never had the meat sweats. Now, I know there's a debate. If you look online, are the meat sweats real? It'll be like, no, that's not real. Yes, it is real. You sweat grease. That's like, you, like your body can't metabolize it. And you just start sweating animal. That's, that's basically what happened. So I eat, you know, and I ate as much as I could. And it was so good, but it was way too much. And I felt terrible for like two days. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Amen?
There's an inverse side to this, though. Not enough of the things that are good is also a bad thing. Too much of the good stuff ceases to be good. Not enough of the good stuff isn't that great. Today's text is a wisdom text. It's, it's talking about how do we flourish. It's going to orient around, orient around the idea of, of money and possessions. And, and it's going to reference food that is, is needful, but that's really representative of all the things that we require in our, our lives. And really what it's trying to do is, is talk about this is how to nurture your faith. This is how your faith can flourish in a world that has stuff. Specifically, we're going to look at two things. God gives good gifts to enjoy. So enjoy them. And good gifts can lead us away from God. So know how to handle them. God gives good gifts for people to enjoy. So enjoy them. You know, a series, this net worth series, we talk about money and possessions. I think it's important to pause and just remember that. God gives good gifts for people to enjoy. So enjoy them and or but simultaneously good gifts can turn us away from God. So know what to do with them. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. This is God's very helpful word for us. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Feel free to grab a seat. Even in those three verses, you begin to hear and feel this sort of tension between needing things of this earth and sometimes the things of this earth having a tendency to blind us to who God is and our need for him. This tension is, is very real, this giving of good gifts and that good gifts can be a thing that turns our hearts away from God. Let me go to another book of the Bible that begins to lay out this kind of back and forth tension. This was written by a guy named Paul who, who wrote 13 books of, of the Bible and helped to start new churches after, after Jesus was resurrected. 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Okay, so God gives good things for us to enjoy with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, just a couple chapters later in the same exact book. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, wait, we gotta be really careful. Now, I want to clarify something. This gets misquoted all the time, that money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what this text says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The setting out to be rich can tend towards the wandering away of the faith. This, this language, to pierce themselves with many pangs, was actually used, the, the language there, the, the words that are used, is actually what's used when you, take an, when, you, when you roast an animal over an open fire, you pierce them with a spit and you begin to, so that desire can tend towards that. But then just a few verses later, we have this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, to be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Wait, you just warned us about rich. You started with we're to enjoy things. Okay, we're not here to trust in our riches, but then, I mean, listen to this phrase, who richly provides us, who lavishes things on us to enjoy. Proverbs 30, verse eight, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me. Some ways, Agur, who, if you go up to the beginning part of chapter 30, that's the, the individual that's, that's writing these words. He's saying, don't give me too much. 
or I might forget you. But don't give me too little, or I might not trust you and sin against you that you're not providing what I need. So sort of like I like stuff, I need stuff. I don't want to be owned by stuff. I, I, I don't even maybe know what am I supposed to do with stuff. And this creates all sorts of challenges for, for faithful Christians trying to live devoted to God in a world full of various pleasures. Joe Rigney, I'm going to quote him and reference him a number of times in this book. Um, the book, The Things of the Earth. He begins it with a series of just little illustrations, pictures of, of different people trying to live for Christ and trying to figure out what to do with the things of the earth. Bob, he's in his late 60s, and he loves fishing, he loves softball, and he loves the Chicago Cubs. And, and he tells a story of a, a year prior, he had a scare with prostate cancer. And through that experience and being exposed to his mortality, God used that to get a hold of Bob's heart, and Bob became a Christian. And now as a, as a new Christian, he's wondering, can I still enjoy the hobbies that I used to enjoy? Can I still like love the Chicago Cubs? Because he doesn't want to waste his life. He talks about Abby, who's engaged to be married. We have, I know of at least two uh, new engagements in our church in like the last week and a half. And uh, Abby, she's engaged, and a few weeks ago, she was listening to her her, her pastor preach a sermon on idolatry, putting anything before God, looking to anything other than God for our ultimate source of satisfaction or joy or security. And now Abby's feeling really guilty because she's wondering if she's making an idol of her fiance. She's wondering if she loves her fiance too much. But behind that, she's like, I'm not even sure what too much is. I just must be doing it. And every time she's around her fiance, she feels this spark but then immediately feels guilty because she doesn't know if the spark is godly. How about Tim, sophomore in college? Sold out for Jesus. He is what's known as a radical Christian. Totally bought in. His assumption, his kind of perspective is that Christians that like read fiction books or watch movies, they're just wasting their time. They spend money on anything other than seeing unreached people meet Christ. They're just wasting their time. They're not sold out the way he is. But deep down, he wonders if he's actually truly satisfied in God. He lives with this constant guilt because as much as he says he just wants God, the things of this earth are still drawing his heart. I got my own story. My wife, Katie, um, was probably 10 years ago, something like that. And, uh, and I thought of this birthday gift. It was her birthday coming up January 3rd. And so I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get her this gift. And I went and I got her. She loves cards. She loves like really thoughtful words. And so I get this card. I'm writing some words to her. And part of what I was writing is like, Katie, you know, you are such a sacrificial woman. You, you are such a wonderful mom and, and wife. You're so hardworking. You're so, you serve your church so well. And you, 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 you never spend anything on yourself. So, so I, get, I wanted to give this to you, and I want you to, I'd love for you to go to the mall, and I don't want you to come home until you spend all the money. And what I'd done is, I don't remember if it was like 300 bucks or 500 bucks, but I went to the bank and I said, I need crisp $100 bills. Give me five crisp $100 bills. And I put them in the card, and I gave her the card, and she reads the letter, and she sees the money. And I'm sitting there going like, this is a really good gift for my wife. She's like, this is a terrible gift. It's like, why, honey? She goes, it just makes me feel guilty. Like, I probably should give this money away to somebody who has bigger needs than me. Now, that's totally on me. Totally on me. Not learning how to handle the things of this earth in a way that actually embraces the first part of what I said we're going to talk about. That God gives good gifts for us to enjoy. So enjoy them. Joe Rigney, his book, says this. He says, what are we to do with the things of the earth? Embrace them, reject them, use them, forget about them, set our affections on them, look at them with suspicious eyes, enjoy them with a twinge or two of guilt. Let me give you two ways to try to deal with this twinge of guilt or to deal or handle with the things of the earth. The two common ways that, that Christians try to approach this, and I would suggest to you both of them are, are flawed, and then we'll look at how this text tries to help us. One of them is what's known as the prosperity gospel. 
This is a uniquely American-invented way of thinking about God, but in effect, it's this, that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. If you only have enough faith, if you only do the right things, if you're only obedient to the right extent, God wants to give you not just some good things, but all the good things. This is oftentimes the sort of stuff that you heard at least, you know, I don't know how much is true anymore. I know it's still on, but it was very much true 10, 20 years ago when you would see preachers on TV. This was the common stuff. Not all of it. You could find some really good things, but this is typically the, the like, God, if you just believe enough, he'll heal you. If you just believe enough, he'll, he'll give you more. If you give your money to God, God will give you back more money. It was that sort of exchange approach. This is dealing with greed. I would suggest to you by sort of christening it, Christifying it by actually saying it's good. Now, I imagine most in this room do not buy into this as a theology, but it does get us in terms of our practice. I'll revisit this in a little bit. Let me give you the other side, though, and this is a side that I find myself dipping into more, and this is a side that I actually find well-meaning Christians who want to live for God often, I think it's what you heard in the illustrations I gave from Joe Rigney. I think it's what you heard from my wife. Um, and hold with me as I unpack it. Don't get too offended too quickly. But this phrase, wartime lifestyle, but let me say wartime lifestyle gone wrong. My first exposure with this phrase, wartime lifestyle, came from uh, a pastor and an author, John Piper, who I'm very indebted to in many ways. And I'm not going to blame him for this. That's why it's gone wrong. But the first time I came across that sort of thinking was out of a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Read it, I don't know, a couple decades ago. And in the book, he draws from an illustration. He talks about the, the cruise ship, the, the kind of luxury ship, the Queen Mary, and how in the Second World War, what, what they did with the Queen Mary, this luxury ship, is they converted it to a, uh, a transport for military personnel. And so what, what they did is they took the, the, the staterooms that maybe, you know, sleep two people, and they put in bunk beds, like four high, so they could get 12 people crammed into a stateroom. You know, they, they turned the restaurants into the, the mess hall because we're at war. We need to take this thing that, that, that might be for luxury, and we need to convert it because it needs to be given towards a different end. And the idea here is that there's people that don't know Christ, and we need to think about the things we're given so they might need, meet Christ. And there's, there's, there's people that don't have the word of God, and so we need to give of our resources to translate the Bible so that they can have the word of God. We need to fund missionaries and plant churches and open hospitals and, 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 and start schools for the glory of, of Christ. And all of that is so good until it goes sideways. And I think what ends up happening, and this is not on Piper, who, by the way, I think this is a helpful way of me, if, you're, if you love Piper, to maybe buy a little bit of favor from you. He writes the foreword on Joe Rigney's book, The Things of This Earth. Because he recognizes that sometimes people take this thinking and they, they take it to places that in effect say this. The way we deal with the things of the earth is this. We say any luxuries in life are a waste and dishonor God. Live as cheaply as you can. Give everything to missions in the poor and don't ever even think about retiring. I don't agree with that. So all the retired people in the room, you can just take a breath. We don't want to waste our lives, but the way to not waste them is not by denying that this life is full of things to enjoy. Things, the, the word needful, actually, that the Agur, the one who wrote these words, uses, it doesn't just mean like the, the bare minimum. It actually means, you can translate like prescription. What's, what's the, the thing that you need to prescribe that's best for me? Let me give you a hymn that captures this thinking, this sort of, and it's not the wartime mentality, it's when it goes wrong. This sort of ascetic lifestyle that, that denies, it almost creates us as a sort of Gnosticism that we separate the spirit from the body. We think the body is somehow bad. The body that God created with all of its senses. But let me give you a, a, a hymn written by one of my favorite hymn writers, Isaac Watts, the one who wrote Joy to the World. He wrote a number of hymns. He wrote another one based on Colossians 3.2. Here's the title, How Vain Are All Things Here Below. Now, I don't know if I've ever sung this one in a church ever. How vain are all things here below. Here's the lyrics. How vain are all things here below. How false and yet how fair. Each pleasure has its poison too and every sweet a snare. The brightest things below the sky give but a flattering light. We should suspect some danger nigh where we possess delight. Because like, we actually start to enjoy the things we should be like, danger. 
our dearest joy and nearest friends, the partners of our blood, how they divide our wavering minds and leave but half for God. Y'all want to sing this next week? You can set it to like a new tune. We'll get a Taylor Swift, you know, chord progression going and we'll get after it. Joe Rigney commenting on this says this. He says, and this would be a little bit longer, but I think his insights here are really helpful. Notice that all things below are vain. The things of earth are both false and fair. Husband, wife, children, food, hobbies, work. All of these are pleasures laced with poison. The sweetness of earthly joys are a snare and trap, catching us in their destructive embrace. Given the falseness of earthly pleasures, we ought to be suspicious of them. When we savor a sirloin steak or delight in the playfulness of a child or marvel at a prairie thunderstorm, red lights ought to be flashing in our minds. Danger, danger, danger. Watts makes clear that even good gifts, such as friends and family, are at best distractions from a single-minded devotion to God. And this, this next insight, I think, is what is so helpful. Because I'm saying God gives good gifts to enjoy, so enjoy them, and they can turn us away. So doesn't that mean like, oh, we should say danger, oh, we should, but I don't think the solution is by stiff-arming the very good things that the Father of Lights gives, it's by knowing how to handle them well. And I think part of why we don't handle them well is we miss the point that Rigney's about to make. Delight in the giver and delight in his gifts are viewed as a zero-sum game in which the more love we give to the things of earth, the less love we have left for God himself, and vice versa. The implication is clear. If we are to be faithful to God and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we must suppress and resist our delight in our dearest joys and friends. To me, Rigney continues, the theology in this hymn is sincere but misguided. When embraced, it produces a constant joy-killing guilt because try as we might, we still live in a world and enjoy earthly pleasures. You know, is there another way, a better way? You know, is there a way to be in this world without this zero-sum game that if I enjoy my wife more, I'm going to enjoy God less? Is there a way to actually enjoy my God more as I enjoy my wife or a steak or, or a, a, a thunderstorm? Like, is there a way to, to do both? You know, is there a better way than unchecked greed, this sort of prosperity theology or gnawing guilt kind of a wartime mentality gone wrong. And I would suggest to you that Proverbs 30 gives us that. Agar, the author, he understood this temptation and this tension. But what he doesn't do is deny it by, or he doesn't solve it by denying that we need things. He also doesn't solve it by christening a, a greedy heart to get all things. Let me give you what I would say is the, the, the tweet of, of this sermon, see if we can find it in the text. This is what this prayer, these words, these three verses are to do in our hearts. Treasure God by enjoying good gifts and stay devoted to God by wanting him more than any gift. Treasure God by enjoying his good gifts and stay devoted to God by wanting to be more central, more important, with more weight, more sanity for life than any good gift. About Rigney asks this question. He says, "Why did God make this world? Why should we treasure the Why should we treasure God through enjoying His gifts, which is the subtitle of the things of the earth?" He says, "Why did God make this world? Why did He make a world for His own glory in Christ, and then fill it to the brim with pleasures—physical pleasures, sensible pleasures, emotional pleasures, and relational pleasures? Why did God make a world full of good friends, sizzling bacon? Amen." The laughter of children, West Texas sunsets, Dr. Pepper, college football, marital love, and the warmth of wool socks. Man, after I read Rigney's book, I'll just give you a little side. I, I'll tell you what, I, I have so tapped into enjoying the feel of when new socks go on my feet. There is something magical about it. And the answer to why God made a world like that is actually in the first part of his quote. Why did God make a world for his own glory? 
that's full of pleasures. That's the reason he did it. He made this world. He made people that can smell and taste and see and feel and touch and be hugged. I saw this challenge online. I don't know, it was like a TikTok challenge. I've never, I don't know it. I only see TikTok stuff on Instagram because I stalk the people that are in our church so I can try to stay up on your lives. Full disclosure. So, so I'm watching this and I saw one though where it's like, it's like the hug your dog challenge. Like, I don't know if you've seen this. It's like, just go give your dog a hug. And I watch this lady just hugs the dog and the dog just like hugs. It's just sitting there. It's just... Like they're hugging each other. Like why did God create a world where a hug can feel so good for his glory? To show off and to share who he is and what he is like. I have a neighbor who makes um, what I think is the, me- the best smash burgers I've ever had in my life. Like, I didn't know what a smash burger really was until he made me one. So smash burger, you, you usually cook it on like a-, like a flat griddle. So he's got one of these outdoor like flat griddle maker things. You know, you can do bake and all sorts of stuff, pancakes, eggs, that stuff. But he, makes- he uses it primarily to make smash burgers. So to make a smash burger, what you do is you go get the right grind of meat. You know, it's the right proportions of like the fat to the protein and all this stuff. You know, this is definitely not like 90 seven percent fat-free turkey this is this is like good stuff so you go get the this bet this really good meat you make a ball out of it and then you heat this grill up really hot and then he takes um he takes Kerrygold pure irish butter you know this is the butter that some of us covet when we go to the store it's like wrapped in gold and he's got this big stick and he rubs it on the grill and he's like a whole stick of butter just rubs the whole thing and then he takes brioche buns and he puts them on the grill and they start to toast and just the smell alone. I mean, some of you, I mean, you just like, some of you, don't worry about your arteries for a minute. Don't worry about your cholesterol. Just enjoy. Like just the smell of toasted butter on a brioche bun is enough to just to save you all over again. And so he, he does that. He puts them to the side and then he takes this, this, this ball of meat, which usually you don't want to, you don't have it. It's like this crazy heavy. It's like usually a third pound of meat because you want to eat like 18 of these things. And so he puts one on there and he takes this, this heavy kind of, I don't know, it's like a big giant rectangle. It's like a spackle or something, big and heavy. And he just smashes the burger down and all the butter and all the heat and all the emulsifying and all the chemical reactions are happening so that your eyes can go wow and your nose can go wow so your taste buds go wow what must God be like who made this oh it's incredible if you're a vegetarian think like a ball of tofu I don't you know I don't know if it works the same way probably maybe like a portobello mushroom on a gluten-free bun I but it's amazing it's amazing how do you glorify God eating a smash burger C.S. Lewis helps us out um he has an essay he wrote, Meditations from a Tool Shed. And in this essay, he talks about going into a tool shed in the back of his property. And as he walks in, he closes the door. It's almost completely dark in this tool shed. can barely see anything except there's this little crack where the door closes. It doesn't seal completely. And so there's this beam of light that comes into the tool shed. So he's in this totally dark room. And so many of us have had this experience. You're in a darker room and there's a, a beam of light coming in. And so all he can see from his vantage point as he looks at the beam of light is he can just see a little bit of dust kind of floating in the room wherever this beam of light was going. And he's just kind of looking at this beam. And then at some point he walks from the spot he is to get a different vantage point. And instead of looking at the beam, what he begins to do is actually trace the beam back to its source. He doesn't just look at the beam, he actually does this. He looks along the beam. And as he begins to look along the beam, his perspective changes on what was actually happening. What, what, what actually happens is he looks along the beam, instead of seeing a mostly dark inside of a tool shed, he can see outside the tool shed. He can see beyond the tool shed. What he can see is the, the, the green leaves kind of rustling through this little crack in, in the wind. And then beyond that, about 90 million miles, he can see the sun, which is the originator of the light coming in. It's no different for us as we look at the good things that God gives if we are willing to not just look at them but look along them back to the giver of those good gifts. We trace them back. We trace them back to the one that provided things like smash burgers or pumpkin spice lattes. See, it actually makes them better because you go, what must God be like who would invent these smells and, and create the capacity to sample them? You know, after I read Rigney's book, I mean, putting new socks on was amazing. But one of the things, like, just, just dancing with my wife in the kitchen 
became so much more enjoyable because he said, oh, what must my father be like who provided such an incredible gift? Or you sit by the warmth of a fire. See, the ascetic approach, the, the, the overly worked pietistic is if God is more pleased if you don't need anything. A, it doesn't work. And B, it misses out on honoring God who provided. And so you trace the light back to him not by not just looking at, but looking at the giver. That's what 1 Timothy 4 was talking about. You receive all these good things with thanksgiving in your heart. They're made holy. They're set apart because they said, God did this. This is how you treasure God by enjoying his good gifts. I have on my iPad um, kind of a regular series of pictures and videos and things that come up. And, one, you know, it's the things that like you, you like or you heart in your, your photo album. And one of the things that I did was a little video clip from a Christmas like seven years ago or something like that with my, my four kids. They're, you know, taking this little video after they'd opened their presents and they're, all the papers around them and the gifts are around them. And, you know, you got Christmas music on in the background and, you know, it smells so, you know, you got the cider smell in the house and you have the, the fake tree, but we have a candle that kind of smells like a tree because I, I, I don't want to deal with getting rid of a real tree. I'm not a purist in that way. I just set it up in a box, pull it out. It's great. But, but you know, it just smells amazing. It's incredible. But we got our kids a, another gift that we hadn't let them unwrap yet. And so we handed them one more thing and they opened up these, these like little packages, but it was really just some, it was like some cut out pieces of paper. And after they opened them all, they're all sitting there with their, their, their little pieces of paper that are cut out. I said, what do they look like? And like, well, they look, it looks like puzzle pieces. I said, okay, yeah, it's a puzzle. So you got to work together to solve the puzzle. And so they took the pieces and they started, you know, sitting on the wood floor and they're assembling them and they're starting to put them together and it's starting to take shape. And, and, and it made the shape. And I said, what's the shape look like? And they go, well, it looks like Mickey Mouse. I said, yeah. I said, here, let's tape it down. So we tape it together and then we flip it over. On the backside, we'd written some, like an invitation. You are cordially invited, blah, 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 to go to Disneyland. So they're, they're looking at this thing, and, and they're kind of flipping it over, and they're looking at each other. I said, you know what this means? And, and they're like, no, what? <laughs> I said, well, think about it for a second. And then all of a sudden, my youngest daughter, Lily, goes, you know, it's, it's like it, you just watched it built. She just kind of started going, she's sitting on her knees, and she goes, ah! She jumps up and she goes, we're going to Disneyland. We're going to Disneyland. And she's just, like, she's just spinning and freaking out. We're going to Disneyland. This is amazing. All the kids are high-fiving and celebrating. And then, you know, my son tackled my other son and ah, we're going to Disneyland. I don't know. He takes every advantage he can to wrestle. So it's like, they're just losing their minds. They're so excited. We're going to Disneyland. Here's what my wife and I did not want in that moment. Mom and dad. It's a very kind gift, but no thank you. We just want you. You're enough for us. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> you know, we wanted exactly what we got. To trace the gift to the giver. And to enjoy this moment of celebration, excitement. Oh, the joy of watching them enjoy for us as parents was amazing. Being so excited. Here's another thing that Katie and I didn't do as they cheered. Hey, dial it back a little bit. You're a little too excited. God gives good gifts to enjoy. Spouse and friends and food and cars that don't break down and a home that doesn't have a roof that leaks. and Oh, and I know we don't all in this room have those things, but it doesn't mean they're not good gifts. And part of what sours us is when we forget to take those good gifts and to enjoy the giver. Treasure God by enjoying his good gifts. And as we go further into this text, stay devoted to God by wanting him more than any gift. That's this text. God gives good gifts, enjoy them, and good gifts can lead us away. So we need to know how to handle them. I'm going to do this reasonably fast because um, we're going to hit more of this through this series. But let me give you three things to, to know in terms of how we handle. The first thing is this. Like know, truly know the contemporary challenge that we do face in this culture right now as it comes to wealth, material possessions. Because I was referencing Rigney's book um, so many times, I jumped back on Amazon and I just wanted to re read a few reviews. How did people interact with it? What did they think of this book? Most of them were very positive reviews, mostly four and five star reviews, but there was a few one star, kind of the lowest rating review like this one. 
and now I'm quoting this reviewer, it kind of makes the reader wonder if Rigney understands that most of the people that read his book are going to be opulent, indulgent Americans who also happen to be Christians. I don't think I'm reaching too far to say that Americans are quite literally drunk with the things of the earth. That being said, this book is the equivalent of a lengthy disposition addressed to alcoholics on the joy of drinking in moderation. Not like pretty scathing. He's saying you shouldn't write to opulent, wealthy Americans on actually enjoying things. You're just nurturing their own addictions. And I thought about that. I was like, you know, you, you have, he has a, there's a point that this reviewer makes that is an important point. But I was like, but that's more, that's all the more reason to talk about it well. All the more reason that we have to figure out how to handle the things around us because we are arguably the wealthiest people that live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. That's not going to change. Not in the foreseeable future. And what I want to try to do is a part of this church is to say the, the solution isn't to say I need nothing. That's not what this author says. He says I need what's right for me. It's not to deny the First Timothy text and say these things that God gives are meant to be enjoyed. I, I don't want to christen it with a prosperity theology that says, oh, don't ever worry about what you have. Don't ever worry about just wanting more. I want to say, let's learn to handle them well, to enjoy God as he gives these. Part of that, though, is like know what to ask for. So you want to know the challenge of the time you're in, but I think it's really important to ask this question. What should we be asking for? So we go to God in the area of money and possessions. What should we be asking? I think what's interesting is that these, this, this section of Scripture in Proverbs 30 is the only prayer actually in the book of Proverbs. In 31 chapters, it's the only prayer. I think that's really interesting. And I think in many ways, it's instructing us to a way of praying, a sort of pattern. And as I've been working on this sermon and studying this text, I kept thinking about another prayer from the Bible, what's known as the prayer of Jabez. There's a book that came out in, in 2000, I believe it was, built around just two really obscure verses out of the book of First Chronicles in chapter four, verses nine and 10. It says this, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers and his mother called his name Jabez saying, because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the Lord, or the God of Israel, saying, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that I, it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Now, I'm not, I'm not gonna pit two scriptures against each other. All of God's word harmonizes. Here's why I bring it up. If you were a Christian in the year 2000, you likely, and you were old enough, like you were old enough to remember the stuff that was happening, you have memories of the prayer of Jabez. It, churches were doing sermon series on it. Everyone's like, have you started praying the prayer of Jabez? It, 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 like, like, if you love it or you don't, here's why I bring it up. The prayer of Jabez sold over 10 million copies. That is an insane amount of, of books in Christian publishing. Almost no books ever sell even close to that many copies. And I'm not going to put this criticism on the author because the author in that book made multiple cautions against tapping into the American dream. He's like, the American dream is not God's dream for you. So he put tons of cautions. But, but what's interesting is I just wonder if we had a, a prayer of the, uh, of the lower middle class, like if that would sell 10 million copies. God, don't make me rich. Help me just have enough. I just don't know if that one sells. And I think one of the reasons is, I, at least as I recollect and the way I heard it talked about, is that there was a contrast. And again, this is not a fault with God's word or his created world or a world full to the brim of pleasures. It's just what our hearts tend to do is we always want more. And this prayer of give me more became so addictive. It tapped into this mistress of prosperity that more always equals better. I think in our cultural moment, a prayer like Proverbs 30 could be very helpful. God, it's not about more or less. This is what Agar is saying. God, just keep me devoted to you. Whatever that is. That's why he's praying this. God, just keep me devoted to you. And that's why. So we need to know the moment we're in, we need to know what to pray. God, I just, I, it's not about whether I have or I don't have. God, I, just give me what I need to be committed to you. And that's why it matters so much. So the third thing, you gotta know why this matters so much. It's not really about rich or poor. It's about staying tethered to God. That's the truest motivation of Agur's words. He's, verse nine, I don't want to deny you. I don't want to dishonor you. 
Anger, he's fixed. He's fixated not on wealth or poverty. He's fixated on God. He's really saying, it's not about poverty or riches. He's just saying, I just, I want, I want you. As we walk through this series on money and possessions, I, I want us to keep loud the biggest reason that I can see in the Bible that God talks so much about money and possessions. It's not primarily about money and possessions. It's about devotion and worship. That God would get more of our hearts. And, and this text is so helpful because it lets us in. It just pulls back the curtains or maybe pulls back the curtains on our hearts of this tension that I think a lot of us feel. This world has things that are enjoyable and good. And sometimes I want them in such a way that I cease wanting God. How do I do this? I don't think it's by denying this desire to have the good things of this earth. I think it's just wanting the God who made the good things of this earth more. Treasure God by enjoying good gifts and stay devoted to God by wanting him more than any gift. I'll end with this. He's, and, and he's already given the greatest gift that actually secures all the other gifts. He already gave the greatest gift that actually gives us all the other gifts, the gifts that we sometimes set God aside of for to try to go get. He already gave of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and what we need to do is complete the story of what's known as the gospel, the, the, the giving of his son, that God sent Christ to, to live the life we were meant to live and die on the cross in our place for all who trust and go to the tomb and raise from the grave. But let's complete the story. He ascended up to heaven and one day he's coming back to bring a new creation full of marrow and feasting and wine, well refined, where death and sickness is no more, but there is joy never ending. See, complete what Christ was doing. He wasn't just forgiving us. If you're a Christian, you're not just forgiven. You're not just declared righteous. You're not even, he actually took you, brought you into his family that he might give you an inheritance that is stored up in treasure, that is stored up in heaven as treasure that one day is coming back which frees us from needing all this stuff now. And it compels us to not be so distracted by the stuff now, we miss out on the one that can actually bring all of it. Amen? Amen? Maybe amen? It's like that's, that, that's the privilege that we have is that God doesn't just in a wisdom text give us ways to structure our lives, but it always points to the need for Christ who is the greatest gift that God would give and if he didn't withhold that gift. I don't need to sit here now and be like, God, you haven't given me enough. And I definitely don't want to get distracted when I have things to think that they're ever better than what he's given in Christ. I want you to hear both of this. I, this sermon is lopsided for sure. We're in this text or we're in this series for a number of weeks. We'll get into to, to how we give and different strategies. But I, I really want you to hear because this is what I think, at least for the people in, in this church that I know, well, I think the thing that gets us more than anything else is the inability to actually enjoy the good gifts to the glory of God. So treasure God by enjoying his good gifts. Oh, he's not dishonored by it just like we celebrated when our kids were cheering. And stay devoted to God by knowing he's the greatest gift. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a gift of a text, what a privilege, and what a challenge in a land of affluence. And I want to recognize, oh, I hope everyone in this room hears this. I know not everyone is in the same position. I know we're not, but, but God, so many of us, we do have food, we do have clothing, we have a place to live, we... We don't have everything, but we have a number of things that can sometimes be a distraction or that can be a veil that hides our, our need from you. That when we opened our fridge this morning, if we chose to have breakfast, that that daily bread came from you. And it's so easy to forget when we can make a Costco run. And so help us not lose the opportunity to follow the beam of light from the gift to the giver, not to reject the good gift, but to actually savor it more because it comes from the good hand of our Father. Above all things, God, make Christ really loud. Make him really dazzling to us. Make his grace so loud that we could be honest, maybe where we're dipping into areas of, of a prosperity gospel that really is using you to get more. Help make our prayer, God, we don't want more. We just want more of you. Whatever comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.